If you had to make a list this morning of things that are absolutely necessary for your life to continue, your physical life to continue on this earth, what would be on that list? There's probably a fairly short list of items that you would need to continue living, things like food, water, shelter, probably some sort of relationship, social relationship with another person is uh, very, very important to your ongoing physical life on this earth. And that's true because we as human beings are designed to need certain basic things to, to exist and to live. God has made us that way. And so there's a list of essentials that you need here to continue, of bare essentials that you need to continue living on earth. And then there's maybe another level up from that bare essential list that you need in order to live life well. Things like family, work, exercise, some sort of learning, college football, <laughs> coffee, you know, just above the bare essentials. Maybe not, you could continue to live without them, but it really wouldn't be living that well. So let's take that idea of your, your bare essentials, right? And let's sort of move that over into your spiritual life, right? Now we're talking about things that you absolutely need for your spiritual life to be sustained and to continue to make progress and to continue on. What are the essentials for that? Well, again, it's probably a fairly short list. And I think if you were listing those out in your head, you would say something like you'd probably begin with God's word, with the Bible. You would certainly add prayer onto that list as something that is absolutely essential for your continued spiritual life. But I want to make the case over the next four weeks, this week and three more weeks, we're going to do a, a topical series. We do something like this every fall, take some topic and sort of examine it over a period of about a month while we take a break from whatever expository sermon series we're going through. But this, these next few weeks, I want to make the case to you that, yes, the Bible, yes, prayer, but the local church, the local church should be thought of as a fundamental and basic bottom-level essential need, not want, not option, a need for your spiritual life, for your Christian life. You need the local church, and the local church needs you. It works both ways. It's not optional for you if you claim to be a follower of Christ. It's not, I don't want you to think of the local church as like a dessert. It's really great when you can have it, when you can sort of fit it into your schedule, and it doesn't overwhelm your weight loss needs, right? You can, it's good to have it, but ultimately it's unnecessary and you can make it and you can do fine without the local church. I want you to think of the local church instead more like you would think of a cold bottle of water when you're journeying through the desert in the middle of the day. It's necessary. You have to have it with you or you're not going to make it on the journey. That's how I want you to think of the local church over the next few weeks. So we're going to start this series this morning by talking about our identity as the church. It's very easy for us to, when we think about the church, and even as I've started to talk about the church this morning, it's very easy for us to think of the church in terms of what we do, right? The activities that we have as a church. 
Now, there's a huge difference between who you are, your identity, and what you do, the the practices or the actions that you perform. Now, certainly those two things are related. What you do flows from who you are. But it's very easy for us, when we think about the local church, to think only in terms of the tasks that we we do or we are called to do. We, we sort of can get in our heads an idea of a list of, good, of things that good churches do, right? You think of a program that a church has. Does the church have a women's Bible study? Does the church have a WANA? Does the church have a big missions program? Does the church have a youth pastor that really connects with the kids? Those are all tasks that should potentially flow from the question of identity. What is the church. And that's what I want to ask this week and focus on is our identity. It's a more basic question. What exactly are we as Woodhaven Bible Church, as the, as the church? So think of it this way, right? Another illustration for you. You and I, on a daily basis in your life, encounter all sorts of organizations, all sorts of groups of people who are gathered around some goal or some purpose or for some end. And each of those different groups has a different identity to them, and they function because of their identity. So you have a business, you have a school, you have a family. All of those are groups of people that are organized or assembled around an identity because of who they are that then flows into particular actions. Now, there are big differences between those types of groups. And if you were to start treating one group as if it was this sort of identity, if it had this identity, things would not go very well. If you start to think of your family as a business, then you're going to function quite differently in your family life. There's a real chance that you might have to let your five-year-old go. I mean... He's not really doing anything to contribute to the bottom line. If anything, he's continually plunging the family into the red. He's eating all the time. He's breaking things. He's having, you're having to buy him new clothes, new shoes at a regular basis. It's not like he's putting anything into the coffers. Just take, 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 take. Right? So if you, if you think of your family as, and begin to function as if your family is a business... And it changes the dynamic. But when you get the identity right and you understand who you are, then your actions and what you do flows out of who you are. What sort of organization is a business, right? Well, a business at the most fundamental level provides a good or a service in order to make a profit. That's what businesses do. There are all sorts of them all over our country and over the world. So how do we think of a church? Church is not a business, it's not a school, it's not a family either, although it has some similarities, maybe to each of those in some ways. But how do we think of the church this morning? What is our identity? And so here's what I want to do to try to help you track through this question this morning. I want to break this down into three parts. First of all, I want to ask a question, which you can see on the screen there. What is the church? I want to give you an answer to that. And then, based on that answer, I want to give you one application. So three parts to this this morning. I think you should be able to follow along. It should be pretty straightforward. So let's start with our question. What is the church? Now, in order to find out the identity of something, you 
oftentimes will go back to its beginning and see how it started. So where do you find the origin story of the church in the Bible? Well, hopefully you're still open to the book of Acts. If you're in Acts 2, I want you to flip back a page to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to start the story of the church, where I think Scripture starts the story of the church for us. So as you think about the book of Acts, understand where this falls in the storyline of Scripture, right? We've been studying the Gospel of John together. We're going to go back to that and begin John 13 in October. But you have the Gospel of John fitting within the other three Gospels, making up four Gospels total. They begin the New Testament. They give us the story of Jesus Christ, of his incarnation, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, his ministry, his preaching, all of that. They show us, the Gospels do, how he fulfills the Old Testament expectations. He is the completion of the Old Testament story, the fulfillment of it. He does all of that by dying on the cross. He wins a victory over sin and death as a substitute for you and for me. So that's what the Gospels do. But did you know that the book of Acts, by its author, is very clearly understood as a continuation of the story of the Gospels? Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Of course, this is written by Luke, the the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. No, it Luke, obviously, right? So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and here's the second part of his story, and look how he understands it. In the first book, Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so that was the beginning. This book is the continuation of that story. It's the continuation of what Jesus began to do in his earthly life and ministry. And Acts is going to tell us how that ministry continues to operate and how it continues to happen. So what happens in the book of Acts? We're going to move quickly through this, so hang on. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus is still on the scene. He ascends, he spends time with the disciples, and he ascends to the Father. And the disciples gather together after his ascension, and they wait for the Holy Spirit to come, just like Jesus promised would happen. And while they're waiting, they appoint a replacement apostle for Judas, so that there are 12 apostles. Then in chapter 2, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit happens to the apostles. Look at Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, the apostles and more disciples, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So as they're speaking in tongues, the crowds who have gathered around begin to notice this and start to wonder about what is taking place and what is happening. Further on in Acts chapter 2, in response to the crowds, they think that all of these people are drunk potentially. Peter stands up responds to the crowds and preaches a message to them about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and specifically his death and resurrection as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the completion of the story of the Old Testament. In other words, he preaches the gospel to them. Look at chapter 2 and verse 36. 
Here's how he ends his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he preaches this sermon and the people respond. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn from your sin and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about three thousand souls. Notice that language in verse 41. They were added. A specific number of people were added. To what? What were they added to? They were added initially to a group of Christians who believe the gospel and follow Jesus Christ. More were added to that group. What do these Christians do together? out of that identity. Zach read that this morning. I won't go back over it, but in verses 42 to 47, you get what they do because of who they are. Now, over the next few chapters, you see the same sort of thing happening, right? It's the same pattern. The apostles preach the gospel. They talk about Jesus's death and resurrection. And what happens when they preach the gospel? People repent. They turn from their sin. They see their sin for what it is. They see Christ for who he is. They see the offer of forgiveness and salvation. They turn from their sin. They repent and they believe. And when they believe, they are added to that group. Look at chapter 4 and verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed... And the number of the men came to about 5,000. They're added to the group. It continues. Look at chapter 4, verses 32 and 33. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The same thing is happening. The gospel's preached, people respond, they're added to the group. Okay? In chapter 5, you get the story about Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the apostles, the spirit and to the spirit, and they get judgment. They're both killed because of their lying. And it's after that story that you get the first use of the word church in the book of Acts. Look at chapter 5 and verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. So the church here is this group that we've been talking about in chapters 1 to 4. It's the people who have heard the gospel, repented of their sins, turned from their sins, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were added to this group. That group is now called the church. That word, church, is a word that I'm sure you've probably heard before in Greek. I don't often use Greek translations or Greek uh, words from the pulpit, but I'll use it here because it's, some, it's a word I think you've probably heard, ekklesia. 
is the word. And what that means is simply an assembly. It's a gathering of people. It's a group of people. So to reiterate, to go back over the same ground, because I want you to get this, when the gospel is preached, people respond, they assemble, they, they church together as the people of God, whom God has called for a specific purpose. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Look at chapter 6 and verse 7. The book of Acts is giving us one message, right? The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The preaching continues. People come to faith in Christ. They're added to the group. Then, if you turn over to chapter 8 and verse 1, now we see a, a specific church mentioned at a specific location, right? So up until this point, we've sort of had this universal group of people, the, the assembly, and now it's a church in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so now you have a specific location. And because this locale where all of these believers are gathered is receiving persecution, look what happens in the rest of verse 1. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So persecution happens. The people, the church, are scattered. And as they're scattered out, what do they do? They do the same thing. They go to other cities, they go to other regions, and they preach the gospel, and people respond, and when people respond, they assemble together into local churches. That's the rest of the book of Acts. That's, what, that's the story that the book of Acts is telling. And so then, in chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going I'm to show you how this progresses, right? This guy, Saul, who's doing the persecuting, he gets saved gloriously, and he becomes a missionary and a church planter with the gospel. And so then in chapter 12, you read about the church in Antioch. So now there's a church in Jerusalem. Now there's another local church in Antioch. In chapter 14, you find elders are being appointed in a church in every city. And so all of these churches are popping up and they're being organized as people are believing. The churches have leadership now to accomplish a specific task and a specific purpose. There's churches in Iconium, Lystra. In chapter 16, now you have a church in Philippi. In 17, there's a church in Thessalonica. There's a church in Berea. In chapter 18, there's a church in Corinth. In chapter 19, there's a church in Ephesus. And on and on it goes. And there are local churches that begin and people assemble together as the gospel is preached. And at the end of the book of Acts, you have the Apostle Paul all the way in Rome the capital of the empire, and he's there, and the gospel is being preached in Rome, and disciples are gathering together into local assemblies. So, all the way back to our question here. What is the church? That's the question we've been asking, and I'm trying to show you from its beginning what the most basic element of the church is here from the book of Acts. Let's move to our answer now. What is the church? Church is the people of God created by the gospel and given a task. 
That's a very broad definition, and there's a lot more moving pieces and parts of that. I mean, you have elders mentioned here, and that's a key element of the organization of the church. But trying to get down to the most basic level, I think this is what you see in the book of Acts. The gospel's proclaimed, people respond, and they gather into an assembly and a community, and they have a task. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about this definition here. And I think these couple of points that I'm going to explain to you from this definition, these get to some very common misunderstandings of the church in our day today. First of all, in our culture today, we tend to, in our church culture, we tend to overemphasize the individual experience of the Christian. That becomes everything about your Christianity, is your individual experience. And in a lot of ways, that's nothing more than a reflection of the culture around us. It's a form of worldliness in some ways where we become so concerned about the individual that we don't think about the assembly or the community. The community then becomes sort of a a dessert. It's optional for my individual Christian life and experience. The community then becomes something that I can utilize for what I want when I want it rather than a necessary and core part of of my Christian life. One author described it like this, our problem. One of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify for himself a people, an assembly, a community of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than as churchmen, and our message is more good news of a new life than of a new society. In the New Testament, you think about this, and the the community part of this, there are all sorts of images that are given in the New Testament to try to help us understand what this thing is that you are a part of as a believer, the church. And almost all of these images point us to this plurality, this community. Yes, you are saved as an individual, but the moment you are saved, you are now part of the community, right? Think about these images. We're the body of Christ. We're sheep under the shepherd, part of a flock. We're the household of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the people of God, the fellowship of believers. All of these images, and there's so many more, point to the corporate nature of the church and the importance of the assembly. The second thing I want you to notice here is that this assembly is something that is put together by God. In that definition that I gave you, what is the church? It says it is the people of God. God creates the church through the gospel. He puts the whole thing together and it belongs to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ reigns as the authority in the church, as the head of the church. Although the church is often thought to be a human institution, I mean, that's the way most people perceive of what's going on here on Sunday mornings, 
It's a human institution, a social arrangement to facilitate the interests and mission of like-minded people, as indeed it is in some ways. The Bible presents it as primarily a consequence of the character and purposes of the Trinitarian God. And I think that's what you see in the book of Acts, right? God's purposes through the Lord Jesus Christ are continued, and his purposes involve a community of people, a church. He is in charge, he is directing us, and he is accomplishing his will and his purposes through the church. The third thing I want you to notice about that definition, and we'll talk more, a lot more about this next week, is the community, the assembly, is created through the gospel. What happens in the book of Acts? The gospel is preached. We're going to lay this out for you next week. We're going to talk about the foundation of the church, which is the gospel message, the gospel story, the gospel work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I I think it's really important that when you think of who we are, we are gospel people. We're created by the gospel. One author, Michael Byrd, calls the church the community of the gospelized. And I think that's exactly right. We are the two fundamental pieces of what it means to be a church, are a community of believers and a community that have understood and have been created by the gospel, that particular message. So that answers our question. We've asked a question. We've gotten an answer. Now let's move forward to a little application here, all right? Here's the application for you today. Your commitment to, if all of this is true, what we've described from the book of Acts, from the New Testament, regarding the church and what the church is, here's the application. Your commitment to and involvement in the local church are a necessary component of your spiritual life. Notice the way this is phrased. The local church. That is very intentional. I used that word local for a reason. And the reason I used it is because there are two biblical ways to think about the church. There are two biblical ways to understand what the church is, okay? In one sense, the church is the universal church. What does that mean? That means all the people who have come to Christ through the gospel in all the locations all over the world since Acts 2. That's the universal church. We're brothers and sisters with a whole lot of people as a part of the universal church. And the Bible does speak of the church that way. This is one of the reasons, the the universal church is one of the reasons that when I travel over to teach pastors in Nepal, there's an immediate connection and relationship and we're doing the same sort of work and have the same goals and the same ministry. We're not part of the same local church, but we're part of the same universal church, and there's a great unity there and a great focus, and we can accomplish quite a bit as we work together as part of the universal church. We want to love the reality of the universal church and be encouraged by the reality of the universal church. Sometimes here, where we live in the United States, it can get discouraging when you look around and see things with churches that are happening and see the decline in church attendance that has taken place and some of the things that particular churches are teaching. All of that can be discouraging, but it's good sometimes to raise our vision up to the universal church and understand that in places like Asia and Africa and South America, the church is exploding 
there. The center of the church in the world very soon, if not already, will not be in the West. In Europe, it's not in Europe, in the United States. It will move to places like Southeast Asia and Africa because of what God is doing in all of those locations. And we're a part of that as the universal church. So that's a glorious reality. But understand the universal church. And now I want you to to understand on the other side that the primary, the main way that the Bible talks about the church is the local church. I showed you in the book of Acts how often scripture speaks about a, a church at a particular location. That's the main way that the Bible understands and speaks about the church. In the New Testament, most of the New Testament is made up of letters written not to the universal church, but to particular local churches. One author said this about the relationship between the universal and local church. In the world, the physical material world, however, this one church, the universal church, appears in the form of local congregations, each one called to fulfill the role of being a microcosm, a small-scale representative sample of the church as a whole. This explains how it is that for Paul, the one church universal is the body of Christ, and so is the local congregation. Now, why does this distinction matter for us? Why am I talking so much about the universal and the local church? Here's why, all right? Ready? The New Testament does not know a Christian that is not connected to and involved in the local church. That's the reality of the situation in the New Testament. All of the pictures, the images, the ways of understanding the church in the New Testament require a local expression of it. They require that microcosm, that sample of the universal church. All the commands in the New Testament require the church being local. Commands like this, Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. You cannot meet together with the universal church. You can't stir the universal church up to love and good works unless you are a very, very popular author and the entire universal church reads your book. Then maybe you could do that. But stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's no way to obey this command without the local assembly. Now, notice the language of our application here, right? If you were to go back to it, let me read it to you again. Your commitment to and involvement in the local church are necessary for your spiritual life. All right, so here's what this means. Commitment to, involvement in. It means officially committing to the church through membership and then exercising that commitment by being at the assembly, building relationships with other believers and using your gifts to serve and build up and do ministry within the local church, the microcosm of the universal church. So here's what I mean by that. Membership is when you as a Christian formally say, this is the 
microcosm of the universal church that I am going to commit to. This is where I work out my Christian life. I will serve, I will support, I will pray for, I will get involved in relationships in this microcosm of the universal church. Membership means placing yourself under the accountability and the leadership of godly elders who will watch for your soul. It's making sure that the rest of the body knows that you are officially a part of this and you're committed to it and you're you're on the same team moving forward. Membership is also the local church, all of us together, not just the elders, but all of us who are part of the local church together, saying back to you as an individual, to the best of our ability, we believe you are a part of Christ's kingdom, that you are regenerate. You're a part of the universal church. And we, as this expression of the universal church, the local church, are taking responsibility for your spiritual life. We want to hold you accountable. We want to love you. We want to build you up. We want to meet together with you. And so it's a both and thing that happens in membership. Now, at the end of the day, commitment to and then involvement in, which means exercising all of these commands and serving and and being there, commitment to and involvement in a local church is not a burden. And I cannot stress this enough, right? Sometimes when we think about membership or we think about involvement in a local church and commitment to it, we think about, man, I got a lot going on. And this is another burden that you are putting on top of me. So let me try to change your way of thinking about the local church. If what we have described from the book of Acts is true regarding the church, that it is God's church that he creates through the gospel, that he calls people out of darkness and into light and then gives them the gift of a local body in order to help them to continue their journey. He gives them a bottle of cold water in the middle of the desert to get them through it, to encourage them as the day approaches, as they meet together. If that is all true, then what is this? It is not a burden. It is a gift of God to you. It is something to be received joyfully. What it means is you are a part of his household. You're in. You're part of the family, and you get all the benefits of being a part of the family. And yes, the family is quirky a lot of times. And yes, family members get on one another's nerves lots of times, right? It happens. We're all sinful, and we're making progress in sanctification. Yes, there will be problems. We are certainly not perfect. But this assembly is a gift of God to you, not a burden. It is a gift that he has given to you that is meant to sustain you, to keep you, to encourage you, and to equip you, to give you the training and the tools that you need to fulfill the ministry that he has for you as a part of your Christian journey. To think of the church that way, instead of a a burden that is, is harsh and hard. It is a gift meant to be received with joy, and experienced as you grow in the knowledge of God and as you make your way along your spiritual journey toward heaven with others. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the book of Acts and the way this describes the church to us. I pray this morning that you would help us to think biblically about our question, our answer, and then our application, Lord. Use your word in our lives 
May we appreciate the gift of the local church that you have given to us. We thank you for it. We thank you for the gospel that we will talk about next week that is the foundation of this, that brings us from darkness to light. We thank you for the gift of your body. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.